I, I wanted to, David's here to preach. We're excited about that. But before um, he jumps up here, I want to let you know about something that's um, important that's coming in the life of our church, of our campus, um, and our whole church. And um, something that's exciting to me and I think is kind of, kind of going to be a turning point in our ministry. You know, we've been doing this for four and a half years now. Um, we launched four and a half years ago. And um, as uh, as a campus, and if you don't know, our church is what we call a multi-site church. One church, multiple locations. Um, and we were kind of our first main campus offshoot. We were the, we were the guinea pigs. And, um, and over, over the course of the four years, it's been a fantastic experience, and, and it's going to continue. But there, there's something, if you don't know, because we are one church in, in multiple locations, our, our connection with our Beloit campus, with our McChesney Park campus, and with our, um, our Hispanic ministry and our African-American congregation down in the, in the inner city in, in Beloit, um, it, has been, it is stronger now than it's been in a really long time. The unity of our church is at a place that I'm super excited about. Um, and at the same time as that's happening, we have our, our executive pastor, who, whose name is Craig Zastro, who has um, been our executive pastor for 25 years. Um, he is getting ready to retire. And he's going to retire at the end of the year this year. And I'm super excited because my role in our church is going to be expanding. Um, and so I, I've been the campus pastor here for four and a half years. And, and at the end of the year, I'm going to be transitioning into a new role. But don't freak out yet. I'm not going anywhere. Um, I, uh, I, you are my people. You are my church. Now, our, our whole church is my church, but you're my people, Right. Um, and so I'm still, this is still going to be my home campus. Um, my responsibilities during the week are going to change. Um, I will become executive pastor, um, which really just means that I'll be doing a ton of overseeing and more importantly, leading um, and developing the staff at all of our campusing, campuses. And so I'm really excited about that opportunity. Um, and at the same time, as I move into that role of executive pastor, um, Kellen Anderson over there, that guy, you know, have you ever met him before? Um, he is going to be moving into the role of campus pastor here. Now, again, that, it's really not going to change all that much for you guys who, um, when you come to church on the weekend, we doubt you're, we don't think you're going to, we should anticipate that big of a, of a shift for you. But, um, but for us, we're super excited about the opportunities um, that it brings. Now, there are also other questions I know that come up in your minds, and there are going to be lots of detailed questions that there's no way we can address here um, on a week, in a weekend service. And so if you're a detail person and you've got lots of questions that just went into your brain and you want all the answers, um, a week from Tuesday night, we're going to have just an opportunity to get together and talk, um, just to hear from you, ask your questions, and we'll, hopefully we'll have answers to some of those questions. Some of them are going to be up in the air, but we'll be honest with you. So a week from Tuesday night at our Fox Hills location if you, if you want more answers. But a couple of things, other things that aren't going to change. You're still my people. I'm still going to be here. Um, this is my campus. Uh, but uh, also, some people are going to ask, uh, what about Kellen? He's been doing our youth ministry, our student ministry, um, for the last couple of years, and it is fantastic. I did the youth ministry before it, and it was painful. No, I'm just kidding. No, but, um, but since Kellen took over, it is thriving, and, um, and so we've decided, uh, even though he's going to be moving into a pat, uh, the role of the campus pastor, he is still going to be running our youth group um, on Wednesday nights. And also, so we're committed to that. We're also committed to Kids Midweek down at, at the Fourth Ward. Um, come what may, that's going to be happening. And so, um, so we just wanted to let you know about a couple of those things. We're super excited about it. And I'm going to ask David and Kellen to come up here now. And I'm going to um, ask them, actually, we're going to ask David to pray over us. Um, you want to say something before you pray? 
You're like me. You got to talk. Wait, I didn't turn it on. My bet. There you go. Thanks. Um, one, before I pray over Kellen and Eric and set them aside for these new challenges and God's use of them, man, I, I tell you, it's been a couple of years since I've been here. Shame on me. You guys are amazing. This is an amazing uh, church, and it's a delight. Uh, I'm so impressed with what uh, God is doing here. But I'm also impressed with these men. Uh, both of them are dear friends and uh, a gift to my life, my ministry, and to our church. And I'm honored to be here today to play a part in uh, setting them aside for God's purpose. If you'd bow with me, I'm going to lay hands on them. And um, we can pray together. And if you, just as you participate, you can just kind of aim your hands, aim, aim a hand at Eric and Kellen, and this will be a united church prayer. Our Father God, oh my gosh, you, you are absolutely amazing. And that you are, you are always at work maneuvering, orchestrating to bring your bride to your best version of her. And we're grateful for Eric and Kellen. They are your workmanship created in Christ Jesus to do great things that you prepared in advance for them to do. And so we cry out to you again for your anointing on them. We are grateful for how you've gifted them, Lord, but we ask that you stir up by the Holy Spirit gifts that will cause them to flourish in their responsibilities, in their leadership. But Lord, we also pray that you cause them to flourish in the fruits of the Spirit, that they reflect the nature, the character, the personality, and the person of Jesus Christ. And we just pray, Lord, that this is a great tipping point for your kingdom. This is a church that is prevailing. And these men have been a great part of that. And we set them aside now, Lord, with greater responsibility, greater challenge, and just want to stand back and join them and support them and cheer them on as we as a giant team pursue your will for this region. In Jesus' name, amen. Yeah, I love you guys. Um, I don't have as many stories to tell on Kellen. But I, I love, I know, I love that guy. I thank God for Kellen. I have such belief in both of these guys. I have no hesitation. It's probably been, oh my gosh, Kellen, I can't remember when I first mentioned to you the possibility of you being developed uh, into the campus pastor here. It's been a, a few years that this has been in the works. Um, but Eric, 19 years ago, I probably met him 20 years ago. Uh, but 19 years ago, I approached him and asked him uh, to be our Gen X pastor, uh, to reach 20-somethings in, in the state line. And he did an awesome job of that. Maybe some of you were even a part of that ministry, but he has such a gift for leading worship. In fact, I asked him, you know, would you lead worship at our Saturday night service? Yeah. <laughs> it jumps up to 300 people. I said, you're, dude, you're leading worship on Sunday morning too. And so he was our worship leader for a number of years, and then he was our discipleship pastor. And then uh, almost five years ago, I'd been praying about a campus in Janesville, and I approached Eric and asked him to consider uh, being the campus pastor here. And he wanted to pray for a couple of months. But what I got out of that, that whole journey is, he can't keep a job. <laughs> I love you. I love you guys. I, 
it's a challenge being here. We have some, do you guys live in Janesville? Where do you guys live? Yeah. Orfordville. They're, they usually are, they were at the Beloit campus last night. Wanted to come back and hear me do my thing this morning. One of my other uh, Beloit campus friends who lives in Janesville and drives down. Um, I thank God for all you guys. And I'm grateful when I see you guys show up at, on Saturday night at the Beloit campus. You got something shaken on a Sunday morning, but worshiping your Lord is a major priority in your life. And you find some way, somehow, to get into his presence. And let's just do that right now and pray to him. Father, we want you to speak in the power of the Holy Spirit. We want you to show us Jesus. We want to experience him. We want to hear from him. We want to know him. Lord, help us in that regard right now through your word. In Jesus' name, amen. For a, f a few months, I've been wrestling with a, a question. I knew this series was coming. We're in Bring. Our small groups are launching uh, this week. And so these are Bring messages on the weekend. And so as I struggled over what I would share at our campus, uh, this question came to me, and I've been wrestling with it ever since. And the question is this. If Jesus came and lived physically, literally, at my house, what would that do to my life? What would my life be like? What would your life be like if Jesus came and lived at your house? How would that change things? What kind of new atmosphere would that bring to your home and your relationships? Well, I figure if he came and lived at my house, the first thing he would do is take the remote out of my hands because I've had it surgically attached, kind of to remove the arguments between me and my Debbie. No, I think Jesus would take the remote, aim it at the DVD player, push play, and say, David, you and I are going to sit down and watch a movie together, Hacksaw Ridge. Have you seen that movie, anyone? Well, if, if you haven't, here's, here's the true story. Back in the early 40s, um, our nation was embroiled in World War II, World War II. And Desmond Doss, the, the character, the, the hero uh, of the story, like every young man uh, in America at that time, he wanted to serve. He wanted to enlist. He wanted to join the army. And so here's the unique deal about him. He was a devout Christian. And it was his sense that his Christian beliefs would not allow him to kill anyone, not even the enemy. And so he enlisted in the army as a combat medic. But when it was time for boot camp, he wouldn't even touch a gun, wouldn't even come close to a weapon. And on the rifle range, when everybody else was, was doing a firing practice, he wouldn't even touch a weapon. So the other soldiers just created great animosity and bitterness toward him. They thought, if you won't carry a gun, that means you're a, a coward. And I mean, it, it didn't just stop there. He took brutal beatings from these guys. And the officers, the officers questioned his integrity. They felt like he would not be a, a strength on the battlefield. He'd be a weakness. He would not be a help. He'd be a hindrance. But he persevered and persevered and persevered. And it came down to like a courtroom kind of moment when finally it was approved that he could go charging into battle with all the other soldiers against enemy fire and not carry a weapon, not even a combat knife. In 1945, his battalion was charged with taking Okinawa. 
and uh, which in and of itself, tremendous challenge. But it was made worse and deadly by an 80-foot cliff the American soldiers would have to climb to get up to where the enemy was waiting. But they were ordered to go. Desmond, was, uh, along with his other battalion members, they, they went up, climbed hand over hand up that cliff. And bullets whizzed by their heads. Soldier after soldier was slaughtered. It was a bloodbath. It was a massacre. They, they couldn't fire. They couldn't fight. I mean, finally, the officers called retreat. And by the time the, the remaining soldiers had assembled at the bottom of the cliff, only a third of them remained. On top of the cliff, only three groups of people. The enemy, wounded American soldiers, and Desmond Doss. And so the, everything is chaos now. The, the officers don't know what to do. They've got to come up with a, a new plan of attack. They, they, they know what their orders are. They don't know how they're going to pull this off. And just then, suddenly, out of the corner of their eye, they see a foot, a boot, come off the side of the cliff. And then another boot. And then legs. And they see a wounded soldier being lowered down the cliff face by a rope all the way to safety. And at the other end of the rope is Desmond Doss. Now, it's not just a one-and-done deal. He spends 12 hours under intense enemy fire rescuing 75 wounded American soldiers, one at a time, taking them to the edge of the cliff and lowering them over the edge of the cliff 80 feet down to safety. Well, I, I, it was two, or maybe it was three years later, he received the Medal of Honor, and when... Uh, President Truman was pinning the honor, the medal, on his chest. The president asked him, Tessman, how'd you do that? And Doss responded, I, I just prayed, Lord, let me save one more. Just one more. And if Jesus was in my living room, Watching that movie with me on my TV, as the credits scrolled across the screen, he'd turn down the sound and turn to me and say, David, that is the purpose of your life. And that is the purpose of Central Christian Church. Do whatever it takes, whatever it takes to save just one more. Whatever color, whatever kind, whatever culture a person, just save one more. In fact, I think if Jesus lived at my house, if, if he came for an extended stay at your house, if it's Sunday morning, 1030, he'd be here with us. And likely, here's what he would say. Look at this text. Let me tell you why you are here. Isn't that awesome? I mean, have you ever wondered why you're on the planet? Have you ever wondered your purpose beyond, you know, maybe being a mom or a dad? or Have you ever wondered... Let me tell you why you are here. You are here to be salt. Say salt. Yeah, that's you. You are salt. Your whole purpose is to make people thirsty for God. Your whole purpose is to, is to preserve the goodness of God in your life and, and sprinkle it over the lives of others. You are the salt seasoning that brings out the God flavors of the earth. And here's another way to put it. You're here to be light. Say light. 
Yeah, light. You are here to be light. Where am I at? You're here to be light. Give me a word. There we go. Bringing out the God colors in the world. God is not a secret to be kept. No way. We're going public with this, as public as a city on a hill. If I make you light bearers, you don't think I'm going to hide you under a bucket, do you? I'm putting you on a light stand. And now that I put you there on a hilltop, on a light stand, shine, say shine. Yeah, that's the deal. You all need more espresso in your communion juice. You got to help me preach sometimes. Here we go. Shine, be generous with your lives. Why? By opening up to others, you'll prompt people to open up with God, our generous Father in heaven. Now, Maybe, maybe you feel like, oh, you know, those words sound great in church. Even if Jesus was here, even if he said them, even if you heard them in person, you think, you know what? That might work pretty well within the confines of these walls. But how would that, how can I be light and salt and shine within the nitty gritty reality of where I work or where I go to school or in my neighborhood or even in my own home? So I think the, 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 the question still kind of bounces around in the back of my brain. What would my life be like if Jesus came to live in, in my house? You know, one of the first things that I would find remarkable about him is that he would have this constant compassion radar working for him. And that he would always kind of be scanning the other members of my family. He would always be scanning uh, the other people in my neighborhood as, as we went out and walked down our driveways and waved at each other. He would be scanning people at my work. He would be scanning people even in my church, looking for a need to help, lo looking for a need to meet, looking for a hurt to heal, looking for a bit of brokenness where he could bring his, his wholeness. In fact, here's the deal. He, he's not just doing that because he is awesome God. He's doing that because he is modeling for us the very purpose of our lives, that we are to walk. As soon as we get out of bed, our feet hit the floor. We are to put on our compassion radar and go through our day scanning the members of our family, scanning our, our friends, scanning our people at work or at school, looking for needs to meet, looking for hurts to help heal, looking for opportunities to uh, at least pray for, if not with, someone in need. And that's just the way that Jesus went about his life on this planet. I mean, he would serve people by healing them. If they were, they were hungry, he would feed them. The, the untouchables, the infectious, uh, contagious lepers uh, from which there was no, no possible healing, he would physically touch them, show them acceptance, and more than that, absolutely and completely make them whole. He would give sight to the blind. He would serve people, the lame, by, by making them walk again. He, he even raised the dead. Um, and it was, all, it, was, it was all this intentional, strategic effort with his uh, constant radar on, scanning those around him for need. And in fact, he was just living out the, the two things he was all about. Jesus was, 
was all about two things, always and only about two things. One is love. Get that compassion radar going. Look for people you can help and truth. Now, one of his best friends, John, had an opportunity to write it down in Scripture forever for everyone to read. What this means, John wrote this. Let us not just say that we love each other, not just blow smoke, not just talk the talk. James says, hey, walk the walk. Let us show the truth of it with our actions. That's Jesus. He would take action. And maybe the most profound act of serving you. I mean, great for that lame guy a long, long time ago. Great for that blind guy a long, long time ago. Great for that crippled woman a long, long time ago. Great for that dead person a long, long time ago. But for you, his greatest act of service, his compassion radar scanning you saw that you were dying in your sins. And his greatest act of service was to build a bridge into your heart so that you could be made right with the everlasting God. And to do so, he died on a cross in my place as my substitute. I deserve that punishment. You, you deserve that punishment for your sin. He took the consequences that we should have suffered. I mean, they pulled his beard physically and forcibly out by the roots. They beat his face beyond recognition. They bludgeoned his head again and again and again and again with a club. They ripped his robe from his back and tied his hands above his head to a whooping post and 351 lashes tore his back to shreds, tore out chunks of flesh. Then he was forced to carry his own instrument of death through the narrow winding streets of Jerusalem until he had gotten to the place. I mean, he fell three times. Couldn't even, couldn't even get it there. Couldn't get the job done. So another guy had to join him in carrying the cross. And, and then you know the rest of the story. On Calvary, his, his wrists and ankles are pierced with nails into a, a blood-stained timber. And then he dangles helplessly between heaven and earth until he breathes his last and dies. And by that sacrificial death, that's what I deserve for my sin. All of it. That's what you deserve for your sin. All of it. But he stood in our place. He was our substitute. And the wild thing is, my past is marked by dark, horrible sin. Your past is marked by dark, horrible sin. But Jesus was absolutely innocent knew no sin, did no sin, and then willingly laid that perfect life. And, and the wild thing is, it's not just that he died for you, he lived for you. So that his perfect life, now, if you surrender to him, if you believe him and receive him, his perfection becomes your perfection. That's how God sees you. Nobody's. Help me. Yeah, nobody's perfect, but you are seen as perfect in Jesus. And then, three days later, God raises him from the dead. Oh my gosh, this Jesus, he is absolutely unstoppable. The worst kind of trouble, he is triumphant. And the wonderful thing is, that unstoppable supernatural resurrection power, you, you, it is accessible by you. 
You can live in that same victory. You can live with that same triumph. You can be unstoppable. Unstoppable marriages, unstoppable parenting, unstoppable finances, unstoppable emotions. That's what was purchased for you and me. On the cross, he was so compassionate, willing to leave heaven, come to earth, so compassionate, willing, seeing us in our desperate state that we could not save ourselves, was willing to die in our place as our substitute on the cross, trusting that God would raise him from the dead. You know, I just got to take a time out here a second and commend you for the way that you wear your compassion uh, radar. Last weekend, you participated in a love offering um, uh, that was taken among our campuses. And we had our radar on for hurting hungry orphans in Haiti. And that love offering totaled over $24,000. So because of your compassion, $7,000 is going to each one of those orphanages, two orphanages and one children's work. You know, my kids that are adopted from Haiti grew up in, uh, uh, surrounded by Satan worship and, and voodoo. And that's a very, those, these orphanages, these children's works are right in the heart of that kind of garbage. But because of you, their pantries are going to be stocked and packed with rice and beans. Kids, Haiti is not like America where we get three meals a day and snacks in between. They're lucky if they get one meal a day. But because of you, they're going to get three meals a day. I don't have to close my eyes. I've seen where those kids sit around tables. I've seen where those kids go after a big pile of rice. And your compassion radar was on. You became aware of a serious need. And you took concrete action on the basis of your compassion to make it. That's what you do every Wednesday through your ministry to those children in the fourth ward. That's what you do. Your compassion radar is on full blast. And so you serve foster families in this area. So I just had to take a moment and say, you guys are amazing. I tell your stories. I talk about you at the Beloit campus. You are taking the truth of the love of Christ and expressing it in this region, and you are making Jesus look really good in the process. Here, here's the wild thing. Check out this scripture. Jesus says, I'm telling you the solemn truth. Whenever you do something to help someone in the fourth ward or in a foster family or in Haiti, someone overlooked or ignored, you're doing it to me. You're doing it. Yeah, you're doing it for Jesus. That's why you're willing to give. But Jesus, that's me. I'm the orphan at the table with an empty plate, and you're putting rice and beans on my plate. I'm a kid in the fourth ward. I'm in a foster family. And however you serve, however you help, however you give, concrete action to your love. You're doing it to me, and you're doing it for me. Um, one of the other things that Jesus said in his Sermon on the Mount, this is just a, another version. Let me show you. He said, let your light shine before others that they may see your good. Say good. No, thank you. It makes me feel good that they may see your good deeds and praise your Father who is in heaven. Now, that word good does not mean like 
opposed to bad deeds like robbing a bank. No, this word that Jesus selects very carefully. I mean, Jesus is very intentional about the word he's going to use here, that when your light shines, here's the good thing that happens. It's kalos is the word he chooses. The Greek word, it means, it doesn't mean good as opposed to bad. It means beautiful. It means so beautiful that there is such beauty in what's happening in the fourth ward through your ministry that it attracts people, not just the kids, but the neighborhood, not just the kids, but the teachers. What you do for foster families is so beautiful. It attracts people to the heart of God. Even atheists are attracted to people who are willing to sacrifice to feed hungry children and help hurting children. They not, may not believe in our God. They may not trust in Jesus, but they want in on compassion in action. I see this all the time at the Beloit campus. Um, recently, I was greeting people down the road during the uh, praise time, and a whole slew of 20-something uh, young women and as I shook their hands, I would ask, one of the girls had invited a whole bunch of other girls, and do you know me? Uh, no, I'm, I'm David, I'm the pastor. Um, thanks for coming. How old are you? 20. How much do you weigh? No, I didn't do that. What are you doing with your life? And this one girl said, well, I'm a bartender. Oh, that's cool. I'm glad you're here. You're in the best possible place. At the end of that service, at the end of my sermon, she came forward and was baptized. Now she's a baptized bartender. <laughs> I have another bunch of 20-something young men that sit right down front. They fill up a couple of rows. Now, there's only four of them, but they are such crazy inviters that on a recent weekend, they had 21 guests with them. And those guests just keep coming. This is the first time they've been in church. They don't know about church. They don't know uh, the, the secret talk or lingo, but they are excited to be there. And at one time, I bumped into one of the guys. His name is D, uh, CJ. He's a great big guy. And um, it was an opportunity for me to say more than hi and bye. I asked him how he was doing. Cool. And I said, man, I, I got to commend you for bringing 21 friends. That, that's awesome. Um, I said, how long have you been coming to our church? Um, uh, since September. Oh, uh, really? Well, he said, yeah, that's when we moved here. I said, well, where did you move from? He said, well, I was incarcerated. Man, I'm glad you're here. I thank God for you. I'm honored to have you in this church. All those people, what are they drawn to? They are drawn to the beauty of the shine that's going on in CJ's life, how kind he is, how he's changed the radical transformation that has occurred to him. I could go on and on. I'll tell you just one more. 14-year-old paraplegic girl. Um, I, I baptized about three weeks ago. It took four of us to get her out of the wheelchair safely. Up five steps, down five steps into the water. And um, bravest girl I've ever seen in my life. Because can you imagine having no control over your limbs? All you can control is from the neck up. And, and yet you're 
going to be lowered all the way under the water. She didn't flinch. She didn't balk. She didn't hesitate with joy. She wasn't going to let her disability, she wasn't going to let nobody or nothing stop her from being attracted by the goodness that she sees around her, being drawn by the beauty into the heart of God. So I just think that if Jesus were to come to live in my house or your house or come and live in this church, he would just want us to have compassion radar on all the time because people are called to the beauty of our good works and are attracted to God in the process. Also, the, the, the second deal with Jesus, he was all about not just love, but truth. And I believe that if Jesus lived in uh, my house for any period of time, morning after morning, he, he would say, hey, David, you got any questions for me today? I'd be like, oh, yeah, I've been saving those up. Well, David, let's open my word. We'll, we'll find answers. You'll find that I'm the answer to every question. David, do you have any doubts? No. David, do you have any doubts? Lord, do you want me to be real? That would be nice. Yeah, I have serious doubts about you sometimes. Let's sit down and talk about it. Let's open my word. Let's listen to the Spirit. Jesus was all about love. And he was all about Truth And one of the mind-boggling things is that he never turned away any person. You look, you search scripture, I have. I have not found one instance where Jesus turned away anyone who had a doubt or a question. He was never offended. Um, take, for instance, his cousin, John the Baptist. You would think if there was anybody in the whole wide world who should have absolute certainty that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, it should be John the Baptist. He was through cousins. John baptized Jesus. John was standing right there when the heavens parted and God the Father spoke over his son. So you are my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. It was John who pointed out Jesus to others. This is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. It was John who proudly proclaimed, I testify that this one, he is the Christ, the son of the living God. But then things went south for John. Unjustly arrested unfairly imprisoned, and not just imprisoned, he was put on death row. He was going to be executed. It's like, God, I've been doing what you wanted me to do, and this is what I get. Called his friends together, a couple of friends. He said, you guys, go find Jesus and ask Jesus, are you the one, or should we look for another? And so they go. They track Jesus down. And they said, you know, John's freaking out. I don't know if you've heard, but he's in prison, and it ain't pretty. He wants to know, are you the one, or, you know, somebody better coming along? And she said, look around you. The blind are given sight, the sick are made well, and the lame walk, and the dead are raised to life, and the good news is preached to the poor. You tell John, I'm the one. Just to be chill, everything's going to be okay. Now, do you think that John's doubt of his cousin changed Jesus' attitude or opinion toward him? 
Absolutely not. In fact, on the very doorstep of that, of, of that situation unfolding, Jesus said, hey, you guys, John the Baptist, he's the greatest guy that's ever been born uh, in all history. He affirmed John. He elevated John. It's okay to doubt and have questions. In fact, we want this space to be a safe place where neighbors and coworkers and friends can come here with their questions, with their cynicism, with their suspicion, with their doubts, and their doubts and questions will be welcomed and answered in the person of Jesus Christ. One more illustration, then I'll be done, of the profound life-changing power of love and truth. Uh, there's a guy coming to Beloit. Oh, my gosh. I didn't know it. Even when I planned this message, didn't know it. But a guy named Lee Strobel. Have you ever heard of Lee Strobel? Prolific Christian author, prolific Christian speaker. But the first half of his life, he was an angry, antagonistic atheist. Not only did he not believe in God, he mocked anybody who would follow Jesus. Thought it was a big Christian faith, big farce. And so he was the legal editor at the Chicago Tribune. And so he figures in his heart, I've had the opportunity to hear him tell his story in person and other times watch it uh, online. Uh, one time, maybe it was the first time, maybe I knew about his story, but the first time to hear it up close and personal, I was at a small gathering of pastors of really large churches. We were out in San Diego, and, and Lee Strobel was one of the guests that came to speak, and he told his story. He said, I figured if there was no God, then there are no morals. And I just will live the most wild and wicked life you can imagine. I just went after one pleasure experience after another, and I just got angrier and felt more empty because they just left me nowhere. They were all a disappointment, but it didn't keep me from getting drunk and getting drunk and getting drunk and getting drunk. And he would come home drunk. He would come home late. And drunk. And finally, his wife, her name is Leslie. She's agnostic. She didn't know what she thinks about God, but she knows what she thinks about this loser of a husband. You may have a big deal title at work. You may make a lot of money, but you are failing miserably at home. And one night they got in this big screaming and yelling match. And Strobel says that he turned around and with all his strength, he kicked a hole right in their living room wall. So consumed with his anger, he did not notice his toddler daughter standing there watching, her face filled with fear. She burst into tears and ran from the room to her bedroom. Uh, not long after that, um, a neighbor uh, reached out to them with kindness and just trying to be a good neighbor, but as a process, invited them to church. And Leslie said, yes. Lisa, are you crazy? No way. No, thank you. But Leslie goes, and she keeps going. She attends weekend after weekend, joins a prayer group, Bible study group, and gives her life to Christ. And she comes home one Sunday after church and says to her husband, uh, Lee, I've got something to tell you. I accepted Christ as my Lord and Savior today. I'm a, I'm a Christ follower now, and I'm, I'm practicing the Christian faith. And Strobel just goes ballistic. He said the first word that came to his mind was divorce. How can I live under the same roof as someone who believes in God? Are you kidding me? How can I be married to someone who is a Christian? No way. 
but he waited. And while he waited, he was amazed by the transformation in his wife. She's always a wonderful person, but now there was this alluring beauty about the way she loved him, and he wasn't very lovable, and about the way she parented their daughter. And he found it so attractive that when she invited him to go to church, he went. He didn't buy it. He listened. He watched. But when he left, he was more determined than ever to use his journalistic skills to disprove Christianity, that there is no God, and that Jesus was just a historical figure. That's it. And so for two years of his life, he did exhaustive research studying uh, the universe and genetics and uh, biochemistry and to try to disprove creation. And and by the end of the time, he said, you know what? I I just decided it would take more faith to stay an atheist than to believe in the reality of God as creator. But but that wasn't enough. He still wasn't ready ready to, to give in. He said, now I'm going to study Jesus. Did he claim to be the son of God, as they assert? And and did he prove that he was the son of God by coming back from the dead? And so more research, more investigation. And then finally on a Sunday afternoon in his bedroom alone, he had a legal pad out. And on one side, all the evidence he'd found. He had found nine different unique evidences from the Bible and from outside sources that the resurrection of Jesus was real, authentic. And he gave his life to Christ in his bedroom by himself after two years of study. He's like, now what do I do? You know, I didn't feel like any earth shake beneath my feet. And then a scripture, he he thought of a scripture that he had heard. uh, John 1 Verse 12, all who believed him, and that's where he was. He he believed, he came to this point of belief after exhaustive research, but, and received him. To all who believed Jesus and received Jesus, he gave the right to become children of God. And so he said, I I see a formula there. Uh, Step one, believe, and I got that. I do believe now. Step two, receive. And so he bowed his head in prayer and asked the Lord of the universe, Jesus Christ, to enter his life, to take over his life, to be his Savior, sorry for his sin, and grateful to be saved. I don't know if you know his story. He went on to become a teaching pastor in one of the largest churches in America. Has written 14 different books. Um, on the reality and the authenticity of Christ, God, creation, and the resurrection. But my favorite part of the story is that a couple years later, that little toddler, now a five-year-old girl, went up to her mom one day and said, Mommy, I want God to do in me what he's done in my daddy. Now his beauty, his Colossus. His goodness was shining out, and the most important person in his life, next to his wife, his daughter, saw it, and it drew her to the heart of God. That's where I want to live. That's where I want to challenge you to live. Would you stand with me, please?